Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hello and welcome back to RazorWire. This is part two of a subject matter about artificial intelligence, machine learning, all things that uh, have been predicted many, many times in all kinds of science fiction, which looks like it's actually coming to some level of fruition, whether it's soon or whether it's later or where it's going to end up, who knows. But today, we're looking at the dark side of machine learning and artificial intelligence. We've already covered what we think it's going to be like for us as security professionals, when we have access to these levels of tools and what we could feasibly be doing with them in the future and what we could be doing with them now. Now we're going to see what happens and what we think is going to happen when the malicious guys get access to these tools. Because let's face it, they have exactly the same techniques that we use in many respects. They have access to the same level of technology. So it's only a matter of time before people, if they're not already doing it, start using those exact same technologies for the dark side of security. And today we have uh, exactly the same people as we had in, in video one. We have the fantastic Oliver and Jonathan. Guys, I don't know if you want to say hello. 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 Thanks for having me again, James. Fantastic. Oliver, do you want to quickly, uh, you know, sort of give a little bit of background for those who may not have seen uh, episode, you know, the first, first part of this? Sure. Um, my name is Oliver Rochford. I'm an Applied Research Director at Securonix. I work with the Threat Labs and Data Science teams. My own background has been very hands-on, pen tester, SOC analyst, also as an industry analyst for Gartner. Fantastic. And John? Hello, everybody. Um, I'm Jonathan, uh, again, like Oliver, former uh, uh, Gartner analyst. And uh, these days, I spend my time doing advisory consulting for software vendors, including go markets, including content strategies. And um, yeah, those would be here. Fantastic. So AI, malicious actors gaining access. Do they have access to it now, do you think? Let's start with Oliver. So a lot of companies are struggling to find the talent to do decent data science. Even if they have the talent, they often don't have the, the maturity in terms of data. So I think on the face of it, you'd think it's actually quite unlikely for attackers to have it. At the same time, we have um, a lot of regions where there's a large talent pool. I'm thinking of Russia or somewhere like, like Turkey who don't necessarily get employment, so they're available for it. And cybercrime as a service where you have very professional-looking providers building these type of tools. They're really well-funded because they're able to monetize it to a high degree. I think they're going to be the people who are going to bring this to the criminal masses and make it available. Absolutely. I think, you know, it was quite quite interesting to read the Conti leaks about how they operate as a basically as an organization. They have departments, they have groups of people doing particular tasks. You know, they're 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 definitely running it, you know, as a very sort of professional operation. You know, a lot of people have that view that malicious actors are just somebody in somebody's basement, maybe four or five different people in different people's basements or in maybe in the same one. But us in the know who who've been around a bit know that it's definitely not the case. Maybe in the early days it was a bit like that, but now with cybercrime and the amount of money involved in it and what you can earn out of it, you can earn an absolute fortune for very, very comparatively very little skill. John, what are your thoughts? 
Do you reckon they have it? Yeah, I think you're right. I think we have a nascent dark industry here. We talk about shadow IT, but I think this really is shadow IT. There is a, yeah, as Oliver said, a very well-funded set of serious and organized criminal groups who have created, yeah, a factory model um, for all types of cyber attacks. And I think the uh, AI is no exception. They have people who are sophisticated data scientists working on and building models and analyzing the models that we see put up by the defenders. And this includes, obviously, fraud. This includes, uh, um, yeah, all areas of cyber. Absolutely. And again, you know, going back to it, the the amount of, of money that, that's available to criminals, I mean, they spend far more on security than feasibly, you know, organisations do. And, and that's going to be the subject of another podcast down the line, you know, about budgets and what they should be. But let's face it, you know, there's a vested interest in these in these individuals to protect themselves, not only from other groups, and insiders from government institutions trying to get into those groups and get a, get information on them, but from just getting caught in general. And with you know, with everything so difficult at the moment with what's going on in various parts of the world, the ability to defend against some of this is getting harder and harder. We're seeing a lot of very odd things happening in certain industries, like uh, a lot of food companies over in the US have been hit. They've had fires. They've had machine failures, you know, and it, it kind of makes you wonder. One instance of a machine failure or going crazy is one thing, but when you've got sort of 15, 20 different companies in the same sector all being hit by similar kind of events, you have to start questioning, well, that's, that's, not, that's not normal. That's not right. Obviously... Malicious actors, what, what are they going to use this kind of technology for? I mean, we're going to use it for correlation of events. We're going to use it for assisting feasibly in the speed response, that kind of thing. But they're, they're going to use it in a very different way. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Where, where, you know, what do we have to be wary of? Well, I think broadly there's two, there's two types of hostile activity these actors are performing. One uh, that I, and again, I'm my back, or the, the case studies I've seen tend to be more in their FSI, but what I see is, first of all, uh, what's called mapping the oracle. So if mm. you treat a machine learning system, whether it be a, you know, some kind of, you know, something VR, uh, or whether it be a, a fraud system, or whatever it may be, um, you try and reduce it to a black box. And if you can, say, for this set of inputs, you can get these set of outputs, you can then reproduce that, which means you then basically have a, a state machine representation of what the AI is doing, which is a good approximation, so you can try and simulate the attacks. The next one, and this is something that uh, I remember talking with some Googlers about a while back, is uh, poisoning the oracle. So we all know these stories about how a neural network recognized the cat as a dog. Well, you can actually teach a machine learning system to do that. And so if you have a fantastic machine learning vendor, and uh, Oliver, I'm sure you and I could think of an example here, purports to examine your network traffic and tell you what's good and what's bad, if you can convince the machine that a particular sequence of traffic is good and normal, then you can fly under its radar. And of course, the thing about machine learning, especially, well, particularly SML, anything based on a neural net, once you've taught it something, it's very, very hard to get it to unlearn. 
I mean, it's it's pretty much switch it off and start again. Um, so it becomes its it becomes its truth, doesn't it? It's like right yeah. there, you go, yeah. you know. Yeah, which um, is not too far away from the way us humans uh, operate as well. Once we have a once we have a conceived idea with some fact base, we are very resistant to anybody who tells us, uh, well, who tries to convince us otherwise. Oliver, your thoughts? So I think right now there are very few real-world attacks using this, and most of them tend to use it in an auxiliary fashion. To give you an example, mm -hmm. there are machine learning models which will go off and create a fake company, including LinkedIn profiles for you. Mm -hmm. And so that's really aiding, aiding the criminal in, in, I would say, fooling someone for fraud, identity theft, and so on, phishing, and so on. Because when you Google, you will find something, right? And it looks pretty authentic because they've trained it on LinkedIn data to begin with. So that's, that's one, I would say, side um, use case, which is already kind of occurring. Deep fakes go hand in hand with that, of course, you know, where we're creating faces and images of people who don't exist. If we look at the direct attack, what, what Jonathan mentioned, for example, the Oracle poisoning. So what's my worst nightmare coming from a company that's using statistics machine learning to detect anomalies? It is somebody taking a machine learning engine and running it against our solution with a reward algorithm to try to get to a point where we don't see it. And to give you an example, if you're looking for anomalies, what if it's truly, if it looks truly random to the algorithm? Are you going to flag it? Because what we're looking for is patterns, suspicious patterns. So I think that, that that's one area where I, where I think I, that keeps me up at night uh, and the company, some of the people in the company as well, because that first generation of adversarial AI will be designed to beat what vendors like us are offering. The second thing which I think is a little bit more um, into the future is and the parallel for me here is these machine learning algorithms that find new vaccines or new molecules. I I'm waiting for someone to have built that design new malware. And we will yeah. recognize it by the fact that it will look like, unlike anything that a human programs. That would be the, the giveaway. It's not going to do it the same way, you know, like the Facebook AIs that design their own language to communicate over APIs that people couldn't actually understand. I think that's that's the scary bit. But I hear some people talk about as though AI is just a piece of code that you can steal on a USB stick. And I think military-grade AI is more than that. It's hardware, it's a database, it's, it's an entire thing. The model itself, is going to be part of the value, and that's a lot more difficult to steal if it's a large-scale model. And you make a good point, actually. I mean, it is very expensive to build that at the moment, that comparatively, obviously, that's going to change over time. But to build that kind of functionality into, into any organization, be you one of the more malicious groups or be, be legitimate, is, is astronomical. But then the cost savings it gives in the long run, because once you've got it up and running and you've got it doing, as John said, you know, sort of poisoning the oracle, counterintelligence, preventing, you know, building new ways to get in or using it to, you know, once you do get in, just letting it run rampant and do what it needs to do. I love that aspect of like flying underneath the radar. Well, I don't love that aspect of flying under the radar. It scares the willies out of me, but the ability to turn around to it and say, right, put the, put these back doors in, just do it surreptitiously, quietly, learn the network. It's similar ways to, to, to how a... And again, a I mean, it's, not, it's not too dissimilar from the way that attackers have always worked. I know that both of you are uh, experienced former penetration testers, and uh, obviously, Oliver, you have the T-shirt to prove it there. Um, <laughs> 
the uh, I mean the you know in my time when doing that obviously at the point where I was either scanning a network or I was um, exfiltrating um, you know a particular uh, piece of data um, the accent was be slow so that you didn't draw the attention of the people who were looking at log reports. Mm. So again, you would slowly scan a network rather than you know putting your network scanner on there and getting it to uh, uh, strobe the uh, strobe the attack surface. And similarly, yes, if you're exfiltrating data, you don't try and grab it all at once, which causes a spike in web traffic or whatever to be shown up. Um, you do it slowly and uh, carefully. So we are, as I say, the, these attacks are not new. But I think what's new is working out exactly, and I think, yeah, working out exactly what the ML system is looking for. As I say, what, that, that idea of creating a state machine of what the ML is doing and then saying, well, we can use this to simulate and test our own attack techniques, which, of course, may also be ML-driven. So you, you end up with, as you say, um, ML systems combating each other. Well, I mean, the other thing there is, you know, there's no reason to suspect that if if they're using ML or AI in their attack packs, that they're just using one. They may use, be using several. Like, you go, you go and keep the IDS IPS occupied with random spikes, but, you know, like there's some kind of issue going on in a portion of the network, which people would, would expect whilst you're going and exfiltrating the data and, you know, you're seeing what other connections you've got to other parts of other companies, other networks. Maybe you've got perpetual VPNs. Go and have a little scope down there. If you've got the technology, there's it's once you've paid that initial cost for it and the time to to build it and to make it work correctly and test it. Because don't forget, it's going to take a lot of testing as well. Why why wouldn't they have multiple multiple AI functions? I think there's one thing actually that, and you mentioned about persistent VPNs. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a lot of things that we, well, in my three decades or so of being a practitioner in this area, um, we've done things and we've gone, hey, I know this isn't great, but it's expedient. Or I know this isn't great, but really who's going to find it? Yeah. The answer to both those questions is everybody will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, we Someone will. That aren't, if we have things that aren't great, like a, a VPN that really, you know, should really be being set up on demand or should be a transaction by transaction, you know, continuous risk assessment. But we set up a VPN because it's easier. Um, and who's going to know? Well, the answer is the attackers will find it because it's really easy now. And I think there, there are two other things. Like we talk about these autonomous AI systems, but in reality, I think they're, they're, they're quite some time away. Um, there was this great paper came out a couple of weeks ago called The Fallacy of AI Functionality. And the paper makes a fantastic case that, that we too often talk about the implications of an AI model without actually checking if it works at all. And if you look at the error rate in a lot of machine learning models, the reason why we're struggling to deploy some of these autonomous systems in, in production is because while the error margin is low, if you scale it up over a million events, it's still too high for us to deploy autonomously. And attackers, I think, are almost in the same, they're in a slightly different boat. If theirs is a little bit too aggressive or has a high error rate, they don't care. Mm. For them, what matters is the success rate. If you go back to spam, like they only need to get one or two people clicking out of every 10,000 emails to make money. And it's similar for attackers. They don't have the same inhibitions of stopping 
production or having a detrimental impact that we do. But I think the more the more interesting aspect in the moment is the same way that we're using it in security, and that's human machine teaming. It is to to scale up and accelerate tasks that a human does. Yeah. And so being able to use AI models to help identify targets better, to actually increase the amount of, of malware that you send out, that's I think the next step that we're gonna hit practically. If you think of I love you or you know, or or, or SQL uh, slammer so knocked out most of the, the systems because it basically DDoSed them, I think we have something like that coming in the next. 24 to 48 months where some attacker is going to use machine learning model to scale attacks to the point that it's going to have a systemic impact, cascading failures, you know. And I think especially when you, um, if you, ex- as you say, if you expand from attacks which are penetrative in nature, you start looking at other attacks. I mean, uh, OWASP have uh, done something which I think is really great. They've produced the uh, business logic abuse framework which is basically attackers are not necessarily doing a SQL injection. They're not doing a cross-site script on your e-com site. They're exploiting your business logic. And, you know, this is like buying up all the Bruce Springsteen tickets. This is actually any hype sale item, sneakers, trainers, any sort of uh, sports leisure where is a target for this, but also loyalty card abuse, gift card abuse. And again, these are very suitable to automated attacks. And to Oliver's point, as you say, we do care a lot about whether things work or not because we don't want to be turning away genuine customers. It's actually one of the big, you know, certainly in the areas I have a particular interest in, things like bot detection and fraud in general, one of the big concerns is, well, how many of the solutions actually do what they say on the team? Mm. But attackers don't care. Attackers don't care about false rates. Yeah, you know no. they care about other success. You know the actual if it if it goes wrong, fifty uh, percent of the time that's okay. It means it goes right fifty. And as Oliver said, a fifty percent hit rate is brilliant for an attacker. And, and their their risk appetite is greater, uh, as long as it doesn't impact attribution. As long as yeah. it doesn't increase the risk of them getting caught, their risk appetite is much greater. And, and that's that's something which which actually in, in in and of itself gives them a huge advantage in using in being early adopters for this kind of technology. Which is which is a good point, and it brings me to you know, do you think they're they're actually going to be a lot further along feasibly than some of the you know legitimate companies out there? Because I mean, let's face it, they are far better funded than a lot of companies, you know, big companies. They can afford to bring in the cream of the crop. Some really talented scientists and developers at a price point which we in the standard industry in the light side of the the force we just can't feasibly give you know what i mean i I think that their usage is going to be quite selective purely and simply because they don't need to invest a lot to 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 be successful but scaling up their business making their business more efficient same kind of similar drivers we're seeing in in the in the legitimate side is something that that we're seeing them adopt, right? But this spending moonshot money to build a a autonomous hacking bot, why they don't need to? We're not using that in the defensive position, and it is an arms race. You're not going to spend money that you don't need to. You're not going to invest in something that you don't necessarily get any ROI on. So I think this is going to be a slow feedback loop between defense and offense. 
And sooner or later, someone's going to reach a uh, a tipping point where they're just going to have a huge advantage for a short period. If um, if, if the First World War was typified by the fact that defensive measures were far more effective than offensive ones, we have the opposite in cyber. Offensive measures are far more effective and cheaper than defensive ones. So at that point, why would you need to invest a lot of money to get greater offensive capabilities? We're the ones who are having to play catch up. So we need to invest first. Yeah. John, your thoughts? Um, the more you examine it, the, the more the, the surface is tilted in favor of these attackers. They have access to the same tools that we do. They have access to, frankly, much the same talent pool that we do. They have access to the same you know, resources in terms of compute that we do. Um, they don't have to pay tax. No, I hear. All of you running a small business, please say, yeah. Um, yeah, they, yeah. They, don't have, they don't have to pay tax. They don't have to, um, yeah, they don't have a complex supply chain to uh, negotiate with. But, I mean, it's parallel evolution, right? It, it, we talk about technology, but in reality, it's an economic problem. And that's what it comes down to. You're not going to spend loads of money unless you get some kind of advantage out of it. At the same time, as Jonathan says, we're making machine learning services available off the shelf. You can buy it on Amazon, from Google, from Microsoft. And you would expect attackers to start tapping into that, to start enhancing their own attack capabilities. But I just don't expect this light year jump. This mm. is going to be iterative in small steps. And us pulling ahead a bit, them pulling ahead a bit um, in terms of direct offensive capabilities. But the augmentation, making things more efficient, more economical, more profitable, I think that's where you're going to see a lot more investment go first of all, and they can reuse what we're using as they're doing with automation like Puppeteer, which is already being used by threat actors. It is daunting, and it's very easy to you know, make an argument that the sky is falling and there's nothing we can do about it. Of course, there's many things we can do about it. One of the things I think that we are all seeing is that the evolution of the CISO's role and indeed of every security engineer, practitioner, responder, we are changing. We're no longer Horatio on the bridge trying to defend against all comers. As security practitioners, as white hats, if you like, is to ensure business survivability. We know these attacks are coming. We know that there are sophisticated actors behind them, and we know that a proportion of them will get past the defences that we enact, despite our best efforts, which is not intended to be defeatist. I'm not suggesting that we adopt a learned, helpless mindset. I'm saying that we need to make sure that when we get knocked over, we know how to get back up again. Yeah, resilience and robustness. And in fact, in, in I, I work, I'm an advisor to a company called Adversa AI, and they do like um, basically adversarial machine learning testing. And they talk about adversarial robustness. You want to build a model that's robust against tampering and so on. And I think that's going to become far more important. But it also, to, to Jonathan's point, like the, the, the world's changing. The attack surface is expanding. One of my favorite examples of this, coming back to adverse AI, was the fact that they, they have this tool where they can change image recognition images very subtly so that instead of being recognized as you, you might be recognized as Mark Zuckerberg. And what I found really interesting was the fact that it went into the cyber-physical arena. They're able to print you a face mask, which fools a camera. 
It's not mm -hmm. just based on a network. It's not just based in code. They were able to basically attack the machine learning model via a camera because it gave them access to the model. And that, I think, is something which is worth thinking about, the fact that how does this expose us to new attack vectors? How yeah. does this basically, you know, all of a sudden an attacker might be able to get onto your network via a camera that you intended to scan barcodes, as an example. And so it's it, it's just opening up brand new avenues, which I think is going to be a bit of a change as far as thinking it. And you just uh, brought something else to mind. I'm writing for a, uh, James, am I allowed to say the name? I'm writing for an esteemed online security publication, yeah. Dark Reading. Uh, so anyone listening here, please read yeah. my stuff. You know, frankly, I need the audience. <laughs> anyway, the uh, the interesting thing actually is I've got a list of companies who are uh, entering various innovation competitions. Really, some really exciting startups. And there's one actually that caught my eye that's doing precisely this. They are looking to pre-wash data before it gets to an AI. Because as you say, once you put data into an AI, you've, you know, you're, you're walking around in its head, if you'll pardon me. Yeah, you, you can, as I say, affect the state of the AI, which, as I said earlier, is hard to undo. So it's interesting, as I say, you've got adversity. They've also got these companies are saying, well, actually, we can act as a interstitial layer between the guts of the AI, especially important in SML, perhaps less so in terms of UML, but you know, I think this there are a lot of these uh, startups that are looking really carefully at what are the the cases that perhaps traditional security practitioners like you know, like ourselves aren't necessarily thinking of. Um, Oliver, obviously, with your research in AI, I'm sure you are thinking of these things. But these traditional models or the traditional ways of working are becoming. Yeah, need to be augmented with expertise in data science, need to be augmented with, as they well, when we have the machine learning model, what does that mean? Well, it means that if we're making a lot of business critical decisions based on data, how do we make sure that data isn't perturbed? As you say, you can put a, a crafted mask or a crafted image. Well, it extends, of course, into other areas as well. And you mentioned the cyber-physical realm. Um, well, of course, another great use case of cameras is in anti-money laundering. Know your customer. Again, there are companies out there, some uh, companies that are working very hard to detect these kind of perturbations, detect video replays and so on, uh, which, uh, yeah, can be quite important. And obviously, yeah, AML KYC is a relatively soft case. This becomes even more interesting when you start thinking about access control to buildings and when you start thinking about border control to yeah. countries. Generally, automation. So that's a really, yeah. I don't know if this has ever only just uh, occurred to me. Um, when you were talking about being able to uh, scan a barcode, what if you had a, an NFC chip with some custom nasty? or perhaps a passport with some custom nasties in it, and you put that in front of a reader. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see I can see there being a, a, a massive future of using this kind of technology for a lot of blended attacks. You know, we've already talked about deep fakes, talked about flying under the radar. You, you know, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to speed up the ability to attack because you're going to be able to use different vectors very, very, very quickly comparatively. I mean, we've mentioned the more traditional way, as, as John said, you know, with, with the whole sort of pen testing thing where... 
it was all very manual process. You know, you do your scans, you you tune your scans to the environment, you you fingerprint it, you look for it. But if you've got something doing that for you, doing the hard work for you, that means you can free up and and do other stuff. You can. It's it's frightening what could feasibly be done. You know, you can you can blend a. Uh, an attack whereby you're trying to discredit the um, CEO with a deep fake whilst at the same time sitting on the network, probing, grabbing hold of data, maybe even falsifying data, doing a false leak of we've stolen this data from this company. This is what we've stolen. Who's right and who's wrong? Who do you believe? You know, because the company's never going to turn around and say, oh, we never had that data. They always say that. Look at the Sony leak, you know. <laughs> I think it's really, really dangerous. And I think, again, you guys make some good points. It's like they don't have any morals. They don't care. They don't care how dirty or how the false rates, the, the, how wrong it could go. They just don't care. Their, their, their goal is to, to obviously get something out of it. You know, it's all, a lot of it's monetary driven. You do get the odd fundamentalist groups. We've seen a few of those, but. As a general, it's all predominantly about money. Well, even, even, that, even that is interesting. If you start thinking about criminals, you know, as a, if you like, what are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to affect a behavioral change that benefits them at the expense of their targets. Well, one of the things, as you say, is if you know that, and again, this is where mapping the oracle and uh, comes in, if you know that a given behavioral input produce a predictable output. And so, for example, if I post something that is objectionable to a, a particular particular you know, viewpoint on Twitter, for example, I know I will create a strong response of people who will react and say what a terrible person I am. Well, that's quite useful because, again, an attacker, if they know that a given behavioral input produces a predictable response... Mm. It's quite acute. And at the simple case, if I want to, uh, you know, if I wanted to ruin Oliver's reputation, which of course I don't, um, you you know, need to do. Yeah, but as we know, account takeovers of social media accounts mm. and then posting material which is objectionable in some way provokes essentially a DDoS attack against that individual. And, and, and you mentioned something very interesting about knowing. Right. So when you look at deep learning as a good example, deep learning, it's a big buzzword in the moment. But deep learning has a very specific application when you have essentially unstructured data, but more importantly, when you have labeled data. And so to give you an example, it's very hard to build a deep learning model that's good at detecting hackers, because what we lack is true positives to be able to train the engine. There's so many different attack variations, and you don't necessarily have the data. You don't assume you know every attack. It's actually hard to train a deep learning model to detect attacks. Attackers, on the other hand, can send their malware to every single testing system via VirusTotal and so on. So they immediately get back true positives. Their, their data is much easier to label. So they mm. can train an engine much easier. And you can see the difference in basically how, why that is important. It is easier to fool a person to believe that a chatbot is sentient, like the engineer from Google a couple of weeks mm -hmm. ago, than it is to detect a hacker. Think about the discrepancy there. So there's this information asymmetry around getting good labeled data to be able to train for certain scenarios. And training it for attacking is one, although using attack simulation and emulation is a very good way of trying to get that labeled data. But it's still not straightforward because somebody has to manually create that simulation. So there are limits to how you can train a model 
And so data labeling is definitely one of the big challenges in being able to use better AI for detection. And attackers in some scenarios actually have an advantage. Uh, to try and, I guess, lift the gloom of it, we talked about a lot about the asymmetry and so on. And uh, I, <laughs> I make the joke that the worst thing I ever did when I was an industry analyst is tell people the story about the two guys in the woods and you know one of them works out they can run faster than their friend so they don't have to run faster than the bear. Because that isn't actually the scenario we're in. We're all in the forest together and the bears are all around us. So what I'm seeing in recognition of that is there are software vendors out there who are actually adopting what I'd describe a modern defense theory, you know, a military theory. But uh, essentially it is that we are all in the forest together. The bears are all around us. Therefore, it behooves us to work together. And so, again, you have people, you know, obviously Oliver and his team in Securonics, they are gathering as much data as they can from all over the Internet, using it for the good of all their customers. And, you know, arguably, I would say if you see an attack, you would probably in, you know, in the spirit of good citizenship, you probably say, hey, you're not a customer, but we're seeing this and you need to pay attention to it. Other companies are doing this as well. Um, You know, human security have made a big thing about their uh, policy of modern defense. And again, where they see a bot attack, uh, where they see a malware attack flinging itself across an ad network, tell people who are not necessarily their customers, say, hey. You might be affected by this. And actually, this is good. We are recognizing that, you know, we are a complex ecosystem. We're suppliers of each other. We're customers of each other. We're partners. And in fact, even you say, well, why do I care? If I'm a supermarket, why do I care if my competitor supermarket goes off the air? Because you don't want consumer confidence in supermarkets to be damaged. You don't want consumer confidence in, I mean, look, and I'm, I'm not a crypto enthusiast, I must say, but the damage that has been caused um, to the crypto piece is affecting every player in that market, whether they are, you know, highly principled with good intentions or whether they are, again, trying to make a very quick buck, should we say. But nevertheless, the reputational damage splashes everybody. And I think this is what we're recognizing, is that as defenders, we have a responsibility to hang together. And and you're right about the trust. Anti-spam intrusion protection systems have really created almost like a form of learned helplessness around autonomous response and automation. And of course, so people are really reluctant to deploy more autonomous systems. But then you have attacks like ransomware at machine speed. Yeah. Putting a human in the loop, and this is great, there's a book called I Warbot by Kenneth Payne, where he talks about the military theory and, and strategy around using autonomous, basically, bots in a warlike scenario. And the same applies in security. There's a point where human in the loop is an advantage, but there's a point where human in the loop is actually the bottleneck. Mm. And whenever anything occurs quickly, going through a human-based process is not going to be particularly effective, right? In fact, it will probably mean you you don't stop the attack. And for that, we need to learn to trust the black box. That's hard for security people because it goes against everything we've been taught. But this is something where, of course, you know, uh, I would say uh, actually being able to understand what's happening on a model level, on an AI basis, making it explainable is going to be a big challenge, which we're going to have to face as well. We can't just adopt it with blind trust as well. So I think that's that's an inhibitor. But it's based on, as you mentioned, on past 
bad experiences. And it's perfectly natural for us to say that, hey, somebody got eaten by a tiger. Maybe I avoid tigers. Hmm. I think there's uh, one of the things that, that, that surprises me very much about being in InfoSec nowadays. You know, you go back sort of 10, 15 years, we were all very siloed. There was not much communication that went on. We, you'd hear about events occurring usually in the media. And if you were lucky, maybe your mate for, you know, who had a similar kind of job would, uh, would give you a heads up if they were seeing something. But we've, we've got so much more information now as to what's going on. And there's a lot better communication between us, you know. Um, it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, John and yourself bring up good points about if someone's not your customer, but you're seeing a potential tack going over there, you know, just quickly jumping on LinkedIn. Oh, I know the, you know, the, one of the analysts there, or I know the CISO there. I'll give them a quick heads up. It's great. Okay, you, you know, you could potentially get a customer, but you're actually helping kind of defend the industry in many respects. But, I mean, one of the things that, that, that does bring to mind, I mean, we've had incidents in the past, one very famous one at a, a particularly big convention where a pen tester was discovered to actually be quite a big name in the underworld who actually attacked a number of different companies. I mean, the old school people probably know roughly who I'm talking about. We mentioned that, you know, Speed of technological development. Is it possible that we could be hampered by internal individuals learning this technology, figuring out other ways to apply it, and then in essence stealing that IP and going off into the underworld and saying, look, I've actually got this this model that I helped develop, or I know somebody, obviously they're not going to say I helped develop because that gives gives a train back to them. But you know, before you know it, some of your machine learning, some of your AI concepts, some of the way that you know, some of the software that you've developed to be able to do things can then be utilized and then twisted to another format. We do have this insider thing that, that has happened before. I'm not saying it's huge, but when somebody's turned around and said, oh, if you steal that piece of code that you've, you've helped develop on that project, we'll give you five million quid for it. You know, who's got, very few people are going to say no to that. Um, and we do know that it's happened with uh, China in some of the US um, universities where Chinese students have gone over, been part of big projects, and they've taken that IP and they've they've obviously taken it back over there. It's it's well known. But with, are we going to start seeing that happen on a commercial level? And do you think that's going to change the way of things? It does happen on a commercial level, certainly. Um, one of the things I looked at in my former role as an analyst was the insider risk problem. And um, I'd suggest there's two problems there. First of all, there are people taking stuff with them. The second of all, there's a problem, of course, of uh, if you are a company and you hire Jonathan Kerr, the hotshot developer, um, what happens if he brings code from his former employer? Mm. Actually, what happens is your code, your product is then tainted and you are open for a lawsuit. Um, so, you know, this is actually a problem. Yes. And uh, so... And this actually it cuts this cuts another way. Back in my uh, younger days when I was consulting, I spoke with a um, chap who is the information security manager at McLaren. Nice job, just up the road from me. And uh, so, I, yeah, I thought, I'll try and seem very clever here. And I was like, oh, yes, I expect, you know, you're really worried about Ferrari stealing your engine design. Said, well, not so much. That's not what we worry about. He said, 30 seconds after a car's been out on the test track, everybody knows. Mm. Everybody knows what's under the hood, yeah, because they're all experts. What's a problem for us is that problem with tainting. If 
we're found to have Ferrari's engine designs in our, you know, in our systems. The fines from F1A are unlimited. They can fine us whatever they like, and they do. And so it's a, you know, it is, as you say, this idea of, well, you know, we need to worry about people when they leave coming in, but we also need to worry about incoming pollution as well. You know, there are certain areas, as I say, a salesperson, and I know several uh, salespeople who are, you know, obviously brilliant, but every salesperson I've spoken to says, hey, I'm only as good as my Rolodex. I'm only mm. as good as the people I know in my contact book. And as a result of that, of course, a lot of people, you know, salespeople take contacts with them when they leave because they say, well, that's, that's my livelihood. My relationships are my livelihood. I know of one HR person when they left uh, employment, they thought it was a great idea to take their talent management spreadsheet they developed, which is very good. You know, nice, nice piece. And obviously, you know, you want to show in, you know, if I was, if I were an artist, I can't draw, I actually can't draw words of hoots, but if I were an artist, I'd want to have my portfolio of work. So I guess if you're in HR, you want to show your portfolio of work. And the problem, of course, is that talent management spreadsheet has some really sensitive data like um, salary details of all of the executive team, things that, you know, probably the company doesn't want. And they, again, they don't want that stuff going out of the organization. It's their intellectual property. And um, so this idea, say this idea of, so we need to be looking at how people are lo- using, how people are using data. And um, at the same time, we also need to be aware that we can, through overuse of these processes, we can make, you know, working in our organization a little bit more uncomfortable and perhaps detract, you know, key talent from going to work there. Why do I bring this up? Well, again, it comes back to behaviors and trust. Now, I know Oliver, whenever I talk about trust, Oliver says, uh, has a brilliant maxim, which I'll let him speak later. But um, when we talk about trust, well, as you say, if we see an attack, we look on LinkedIn and we see if there's somebody we know, we can say, hey, I think there's something happening at your organization you need to take care of. Well, that's a behavior that an attacker can simulate. And we know they do. You know, we've mm-hmm. all had friend requests on Instagram and Facebook. And we we know that people, you know, spoof messages and so on. So they're trying to, again, drive behavior using trust. Uh, uh, Also, I mean, it it, it depends on really coming back to new attack vectors, right? So one of the the interesting things about deep learning neural networks is that because they don't need structured data, you can just apply them, reapply them to a new problem. So something which you essentially develop for one use case, you can apply to a similar use case. So once again, you can move it. The other thing is that if you're capturing institutional knowledge, that model has a lot of your knowledge in it. You can't really determine what it's got in it, but it does have it. And you can steal that almost like a database. But the biggest thing which I find, which people isn't clear to people, you know, as I mentioned earlier, for example, with VirusTotal, you can you can send and see whether you're detected. The same as with any kind of anomaly detection technology. For Defender, it helps you detect anomalous activity. For an attacker, it helps you hone your abilities to not be detected. Mm-hmm. So it has a double application. And to an extent, and Jonathan mentioned earlier, that model is, you will trust that model to see what you're looking for. And if someone can fool that model, you just don't see it. It's basically absence of evidence, but it's not evidence of absence. It's just, it's like basically having having a set of glasses which don't show you a specific color, right? And that's the other aspect. 
you buy a model off the shelf from someone that's been pre-trained, how do you know what the model doesn't see? Was there somebody building it who says, well, if I'm wearing a hat with a number five on it, don't detect me? It's hard to be able to actually work out in retrospect what the model is able to do or not able to do. And I think that's where the biggest um, risk is going to come from in these, in these kind of situations, the not knowing. Yeah, the not knowing. One of the things I've always um, I've always thought, um, and again in my in my past life when I've designed things, I've always felt the most successful security designs model the way that humans work. Yeah, so uh, oh, trust is a big element in the way that humans work, and as you say, so clearly an attacker can seeks to misuse and exploit trust, as do obviously some. Uh, uh, rapscallion corporate bosses, but let's not go into that right now. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I've worked yeah. in marketing. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, we all we've all we've all met those ones. <laughs> you are that rapscallion, and I claim my five pounds. <laughs> um, so, no, seriously, going back to the subject, why is machine learning particularly important here? Well, machine learning means I don't just have to do it once or twice at a time. You know, I don't pick my mark and try and you know, exploit the relationship between James and Oliver. I pit my mark is everybody. Mm. And I build a, a complex network of interrelationships, and I analyze those relationships. Perhaps I assign weighting to those relationships in much the you know, same way as every fraud system does. You know, they work out, your bank works out who do you pay most, those are the, uh, you know, the, they would say, right, the people you pay most, you probably trust more. And so they use that when they're making payment decisions. You know, if I pay Oliver money, then the bank will say, well, that means Oliver's a little bit more trustworthy as a payment recipient than James, who I've never paid before in my life. Example, yeah, James, very trustworthy. Um, <laughs> but again, well, you never, you never, you learning, never paid me. <laughs> that's true, yeah. And the <laughs> the machine learning systems deployed by adversaries can evaluate those complex trust networks and say, right, this is what my attack path looks like. Again, this is why we see attacks not just at significant public figures in organizations, but their golfing buddies, their spouses, their children, their friends of children. And um, again, in my past life, I've had um, a CISO say to me, I'm a bit worried about my, my CEO. She is the CEO of a life sciences company, and she is an active mother and likes supporting her kids' uh, soccer team. And on the soccer team, you know, the school soccer team Facebook, she puts her cell number. Should I be worried about this? Well, yeah, there's several factors in there that maybe give a resounding yes, absolutely. I think this is this this is the frightening thing. I mean, I do think with 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 this kind of technology, it is going to get to the point where the ability to fingerprint an individual's entire existence is going to. I mean, Google already do that. You know, we we all know that they they they've got profiles on on pretty much everybody and every topic and every word that's ever been put on the internet but you know if you're malicious and you really want to take somebody down if you want to because it, it's all gone down the ransom route let's face it ransomware ransoming has all and, and threatening people or threatening to destroy somebody's life or company is a very very quick way to get paid and let's be honest they wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't lucrative 
if it hasn't already been proven to be lucrative. But using something like machine learning and saying, right, tell me everything about this company. What connections have they got? Where are they, you know, what are they connected to? Who are their suppliers? Attacks these days, and they have been for a while, have been very complicated. People going through third-party companies' refrigeration command and control software to get onto internal networks and still cardholder data was a good example from many, many years ago. And I think this this type of technology is just going to really rapidly speed up the ability to, to fingerprint, the ability to acquire information on a target and really do some serious targeted attacks. You're already going to know you know, who they rely on, where their systems lie. And and you're going to see a lot more, I think you're going to see a lot more side channel attacks. You know, if you've got a very, very secure network, as we well know, and it's connected to a very, very insecure network, why would you attack the secure network when you've got a comparatively insecure network and you've got a lot less security to get through to get to the crown jewels? And, you know, PCI DSS is a big example of that, you know, segmentation of specific types of databases or, or processes. It's a very, very, very big part of it. A lot of our networks are now becoming a lot more segmented than they were. I mean, I remember when they were all flat, Oliver could connect to John's machine in five seconds flat if he knew what he was doing on the same network. It's very different now. We've got different sets of technology, but I still think that that machine learning... As Sun Microsystems, mm. everybody could connect to anything. Mm. Um, it was a very, I could. I was in obviously based in Europe. I could connect to the source, the Solaris source code repositories in uh, uh, Milpitas and Mountain View, and so on. And, and and the way to look at it, it's not as though machine learning is going to be a new rifle, but it is more like a like a telescopic scope and mm. new ammunition. It's going to enhance the way that we attack for quite some time before it replaces the way that we attack. But that's already an escalation of effectiveness, which would stress quite a lot of companies' ability to defend against, because there are a lot of them already um, just about managing now. I would argue a lot of companies probably aren't. Uh, I think you know the, a, a lot of organisations are very much on the back foot. I think you know we've all seen it. I, I get a lot from people saying, "Oh, you know, they're a large company; their security must be great." And I kind of look at them and go. <laughs> Don't count on it. You may have a huge bucket, but there's, <laughs> there's still good potential for a lot of leaks in there if you if you don't if you know where you're looking. I don't know. And again, for for me, I mean, I don't see I can see automated attacks in the future using that kind of technology. You know, it will happen. Yeah. But I think the you know the ability to cut back on the amount of information gathering that it could feasibly give to you in such a short space of time. I mean, if I wanted to, to check you out, Oliver, it would take me days, weeks to kind of gather up quite a bit of info, I, you know, where you work, what you do and all the rest of it. If I had something with, with machine learning that could, I could just say, go and find out everything you know about Oliver Rochford. Off it would toddle, it would go and analyze everything. There'll be some false positives in there, but I would comparatively get a hell of a lot more information that I could feasibly utilize in, in, in a blended attack than if I'd, if I'd done it myself. And let's face it, malicious actors they're quite lazy as a general rule. They just want to get in there. They want to get their money. And if they can use any tool to speed up that process, they will do. And I think that's where machine learning, AI, that kind of technology is is, is going to be really, really, they're going to find it really hard to pass up. I think I think there's some, there's some worries for the future here. Aren't there always? The future is just one big worry. <laughs> well, yeah, especially at the moment with everything going on. But uh, I mean... There's so much that can be done that these guys can do. We've heard of, of, of like 
during certain elections over in the state, people saying that, that another denomination of people were involved in that. And the manipulation of adverts and data and media and so on and so forth. And all this technology is going to do is going to make it a hell of a lot easier to do a hell of a lot quicker. Well, the, the genie's out of the bottle. The one thing which concerns me is how some, like if I look at Europe as an example of how they are limiting the usage of AI, facial recognition, there's a five-year moratorium on it while we're investigating it. Some of our competitors and adversaries do not have that same level of, of self-limitation. Mm -hmm. To use China as an example, they are doing machine learning on a massive scale in AI stuff from a social point of view, from a military point of view. They don't have data privacy protection, so they have data amounts which we can only dream of. And this is something where you can't pretend it's not going to happen. You can't hide away from it. It's already mm -hmm. out there. The, the, the genie's out of the bottle. And the only thing you can try to do is, is keep pace or accelerate. And I think that's a concerning thing. This isn't something that one individual party or country controls. Everyone has access to it, whether the good guys or the bad guys. Fantastic. So we've hit the top of the hour now. Um, what? Any sort of concluding thoughts? I mean, where do we go from here? Is, is, is this something that we can we can deal with or do you think it's it's a case of you know business as usual with us and we just have to adapt as as we see things change because as we all know they can change bloody quickly if needed well i think you're right changing very quickly as needed if attack patterns are moving fast and are evolving beyond the speed that we would expect a human attacker to be able to evolve, then clearly our responses need to be able to evolve at speed beyond the speed that a human defender can evolve. Now, there are challenges to that. And as Oliver said, we care as defenders, we care about getting it wrong. We care about stopping a genuine customer getting to the e-commerce website. Um, we care about a genuine customer not being able to buy the uh, concert ticket they want because we've mistakenly marked them down as a, as, a, uh, as a bot scalper. We care about, you know, not cutting off access to somebody who's just trying to get their job done. They're perhaps he's doing you know, something a little bit unusual. And so we are, as you say, we, but we, nevertheless, we, we are fortunate that there are, you know, people like Oliver working in this area who are developing newer and faster models of defence to come up against the newer and faster models being uh, deployed by our adversaries. Yeah, I, I was going to say, actually, I'm not. I, I work on a team that does this, but I'm not a smart guy. It's all of our data scientists that actually do all of the really cool stuff. Um, but but I, I think it's an important point. We have, to, we have to keep our fingers on the pulse here. Right now, we're co-evolving. And, and it's not as easy to just get a breakthrough. If I think of Russia, it's not enough to be able to write code. To make a true breakthrough here, you need to be able to develop hardware as well. Mm. At the same time, there's this point where if you achieve AI dominance, it's not just going to be dominance in AI. Those advantages you're going to get are going to extend into other areas, whether it's societal, whether it's technological, whether it's commercial. So we have to keep up in this arms race. That's for right now it's co-evolution, but it can easily um, happen if, if somebody makes a true breakthrough, that they get a real advantage. So we have to keep our fingers on the pulse. Fantastic. Right. Well, thank you all for coming. It's been absolutely fantastic talking about the subject matter. And thank you to, to the guests, Oliver and John, for coming and, and imparting some wisdom on this subject matter. I think it's uh, definitely something we should probably revisit down the line, you know, a couple of years down the line, see 
see where we are. Or if something, as Oliver says, dramatically changes with a big breakthrough, I think we're going to have to revisit this. <laughs> it's a big subject and it's quite a fun one too. But thank you to all of you out there. Please feel free to send us any sort of information or any content you'd like us to cover. If you've got any questions for me or the guests or the team, you'll find various different ways to, to get in touch with us. It's been absolutely fantastic and we'll look forward to seeing you on our uh, next podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.